This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. If we're looking at doing things quickly, it does matter when we're talking about diagnoses of things like cancer. You want to make sure that your cancer diagnosis, if it ever happens, comes fast so that you can be treated, so that we can make use of what we know about fighting this horrific disease on so many levels because there are so many different types of cancer. Well, a couple of months ago, researchers at Lawson Health Research Institute here in London talked about using a novel diagnostic imaging tool And the idea was it would detect breast cancer faster and maybe even, more importantly, more accurately. And what it was was a contrast-enhanced spectral mammography, or CESM for the rest of us, because saying those words together, not easy. And the first ever breast biopsy using this was performed at St. Joe's, at St. Joseph's Healthcare, on June the 12th. And they were going through some research, doing some further study to see if they could declare, yeah, no, what we think is what is. And here's hoping that we can get to that day because we've got a lot of cancer survivors and we've got a lot of people who have experienced the loss of a loved one who had cancer. And it's pretty difficult to be on one side and it can be pretty remarkable to be on the other and joining us right now is someone who has been on the cover of people magazine she is somebody who again you just want to have in your life so that if all of a sudden you're feeling down you can say i know who i'm going to call i'm going to call lindy lindy will make it feel better Lindy Chilucci joins us right now, breast cancer survivor, mom in Ontario, retired kindergarten teacher. Lindy, how are you doing as we come to an end of the week? Well, I, I'm just smiling here. Thank you very much for all those wonderful compliments. <laughs> I'm well, like, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> we all need people like you in our lives. You realize awesome. that. Oh, that's great. Let's that's talk awesome. a little bit about the idea of of a tougher battle, of tougher times for you, when you may have needed people to to kind of reach out to you and and to kind of give you that pat on the back to say, hey, you're going to get through this, you're going to get this done. When were you diagnosed with breast cancer? Well, it's funny because I had, uh, I had started um, in 2014. I went on a trip with some girlfriends, and I was very big. I was a very large woman, almost 300 pounds. And I was having a really hard time keeping up with them. And when I came home, I was, I said, that's, I just can't do this anymore. It's time for me to get this weight off. And, and I joined uh, WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers, and I just started to get the weight off. And I was feeling fantastic. You know, I was eating so much better and I had started to move more with, with Fitbit and, and it was just great. I was going. I was like a, about a year and a little bit into it. And I was down 82 pounds. So I was well, like more than halfway to losing half my size. And um, I came in from a very cold walk one day just, just before Christmas, about a week before. And I put my hands under my arms to warm them up because you know how cold it is here in Canada. And, um, and, and I felt the lump. And I kind of knew right away what it was. 
I put it on hold, which I don't suggest to anyone, for, for just a few weeks because it was Christmas and I didn't want to ruin it for my family. Um, but I, uh, I, everything was confirmed in January. And just, you know, everything at that point is kind of out of your control. So, you know, you're going for appointments and biopsies and then you're getting, you're seeing your surgeon and, and, uh, operated on. And the next thing I know, I'm doing six months of chemo and, uh, and then radiation and then a year of Herceptin. And so it's just, it's a whirlwind. I was very lucky though, because I went through it actually with a friend, which is not lucky. It's, odd um but it was someone that i could bounce things off of and it was it was great to have her uh, my friend michelle with it yeah when you say you knew what is it like to go through those weeks while you wait for kind of the holidays to expire and everything to go back and and then say okay i got to get this checked what was that time like for you it's awful the, the waiting is actually the worst once you find out then you go okay now i have a plan and this is what's going to happen and you go but it's that waiting it's it's like uh you know the dun 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 dun, dun. you know it's awful um but you know you, you get through it because you're a whole lot more tenacious than you realize you're a whole lot stronger than you realize and you you get through it one day at a time uh, not not to say that there aren't some dark days uh but then there's like decent good days too and i think probably the worst is when you lose your hair is because everyone knows so even though you're having a good day and you're out grocery shopping people are giving you the sad face oh she's got cancer right you know and you're like oh but i'm shopping <laughs> uh but you know it, you you get there and um yeah so then then that that's when you know life sort of turned around so i had actually um started with weight watchers again once i had got my second all clear mammogram um, and I thought, okay, you know what? You're not going to die. This isn't a life sentence. It's time for you to get on with it. I had gained all of the weight back, which was very mortifying to me. But And I'd gotten rid of all my clothes, too. And I just started again. And so within 20 months, I had lost half my size. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's how I end up on the cover of People magazine. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to take us through that story in just a minute. We're talking with Lindy Chalucci, who is a breast cancer survivor, a mom in Ontario, retired kindergarten teacher, and we said it, Lindy, on People Magazine, on Good Morning America at one point, and we get an opportunity to talk about you know how you've you've gone back to a healthy lifestyle and what that may have meant in dealing with cancer. But let's talk about People Magazine. How does somebody find out that People Magazine wants to put you on the cover? How cool is that? Well, one day I was just kind of bored and I was messing around on my phone and I was looking at the Fitbit app. And it said, hey, do you have a story to tell? Because we'd like to hear it. And I thought, well, you know what? I actually do. And so I just <laughs> fired off, <laughs> as a matter of fact, so I fired off a quick email and just told them a little bit about my story. And I heard back like within the hour. They were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. We love this. Would you mind? We actually know somebody who is a writer with this team that does the half my size. Would you mind if we put your name in? I was like, are you kidding me? I would love that. But I really didn't think anything would ever come of it. I mean, it's just one of those pipe dreams and it made like a great story. And so when I didn't hear for months and I said to my husband, I hope they don't tell me soon that I didn't get it because it still makes a great story right now. And then it was election day last October, and I was just about to walk out the door to uh, go and vote with my daughter. And I just said, oh, let me just check my emails real quickly. And I saw that there was one from People. Well, I actually have a subscription, so I thought maybe it's because of that. But something about the language made me go, hmm, 
wait a second. And I opened it and I went, oh, oh my God, I got it. Oh my God, I got it. And my daughter's like, got it, got it. What did you get, mom? What did you get? And I said, I'm going to be in People Magazine. And I freaked out. The worst part is, as you can tell, I'm a complete oversharer. I wasn't allowed to tell anybody. It was so hard because I just wanted to get off on my roof right at that point and just yell it to everyone because it was so cool. But within like two or three weeks, I was in New York City doing a photo shoot. And it was so cool. That's amazing. So cool. It was amazing. Yeah. Now, we've all kind of gone through the grocery store lineups, and these days grocery store lineups tend to be pretty long, so those (laughs) magazines stare at you. Did you have a moment at one point? I mean, musicians will say the first time they hear their song on the radio is one of those things. Did you have a moment when you were, say, grocery shopping again when all of a sudden, wait a minute, that's me! That's me. Oh, I didn't have one of those the entire week that it was on the shelf. I had about 50 of them. And I stood there and I pointed to total strangers and said, that's me. That's because it, like, how does that happen? Right. And I thought I'm giving someone else a cool story because it's like, they're going to say, Hey, I met the woman who was on the cover of people magazine. <laughs> that was pretty good. Right. Just because I lost 150 pounds. Well, <laughs> but, you let's know, get into... you, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that's actually, uh, that's going to keep me cancer-free because I don't have breast cancer anywhere in my family, nowhere. So I, when I was talking to my oncologist about it, I said, why me? Not like, oh, why me? Because, you know, like little kids get cancer, so why not me? But um, I said, you know, like, why? Why Why would I get it? And he said, Lindy, probably because you were obese. And I was like, what? I had no idea. No idea. And I'll tell you, if that one thing is going to keep me slim for the rest of my life, that'll be the one. I'll never We are talking back. with Lindy Chalucci, who is a breast cancer survivor. Hearing that information, because immediately, sure, you do think family history, and you think, well, you know, at some point somebody in my family must have and maybe didn't know or whatever it happened to be. But when you hear that there may be a link to obesity, what was it like to get that news? Oh, just I it's probably the last piece of my puzzle. You know, I I've gone on to have this great life in the last few years. But that is the one thing I beat myself up about that I did that to myself. And I haven't quite forgiven myself. I'm going to start crying. Uh, I haven't I haven't forgiven myself for that. I'm working on it. Okay. Yeah. Well, you you will get there. Now let's talk about what that oh, yeah. what that kind of propels you toward because that incentive is something that you have made use of. So keeping the balanced, healthy lifestyle, what does that include? You know, it's just, it's not even eating less. It's just eating better. Um, you know, as busy moms or dads, we, we tend to put ourselves second. And, you know, now I put myself first quite often. My, my kids are older too, which also helps. And I am retired, which also helps. But, yeah, I, I uh, put myself first. And, and exercise, I have become this crazy walker. Do you know the other day I did 100,000 steps in one day? Come on. How far, how far is that? What is, that's 15 huge. 15 hours. 15 hours. I'll never do it again. (laughs) Was there a reason you did this or was this a challenge? You wake up in the morning thinking, you know, 100,000 steps. I wonder if somebody can do that in a day. (laughs) You get badges on Fitbit. It was the last one. I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it just so I can say I did. And that's it. Never again. Never again. Could take a little bit of the joy away. But yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Crazy. Now, you have to understand that just 
six years ago, I could only walk a thousand steps. I did once around my block and that was all I could do at 300 pounds. And so to do a hundred thousand in a day, it was a pretty cool milestone for me. That is absolutely wild. Well, we are talking right now with Lindy Cellucci, and we're talking about how things have progressed in her life over the last few years since getting a breast cancer diagnosis and now getting back into a healthy lifestyle. You mentioned that after your battle with cancer, you'd kind of put the weight back on. Was it more difficult to lose the second time, or or had you been able to say, I've done this once, I can do it again? Yeah, absolutely. And and it just so happened at the time that I was ready, you know, and that I was ready to live again, um, Weight Watchers had just uh, finished switching their program up, and they added a lot of foods that were zero points. And so that, I don't know, it resonated with me. And no, I had no problem. I actually lost weight every single week for an entire year. Never had a game because I just, I didn't feel deprived. I wasn't starving myself. I was just eating really well. I'm fueling my body. And I just, I, I look at food differently now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been fantastic. And I try and encourage as many people to live that healthy lifestyle as well. And, you know, not be perfect. Everyone's going to have apple pie this weekend. It's okay, right? <laughs> Just don't eat right. the whole thing. <laughs> what would be, as, as we kind of close out, Lindy, what would be a suggestion for somebody who is saying, you know, I, I would like to be like Lindy. I would like to be able to lose the weight I've wanted to lose forever, and I would like to be healthier than maybe what I am. I'd, I'd like to go out and grab that badge on whatever fitness tracker we happen to have. So what is a, a suggestion to get started? Because it's so tough to even get that happening sometimes. Yeah, so hard. You know what? My number one thing, and I tell people this all the time, is to clean out your environment. If you don't have it in your house, you're going to be so much less likely to eat it. And one of my little sayings is, say no once in the store or a hundred times at home. So just don't bring it in the house, and it just makes your life so much easier. And as far as cancer is concerned, I really, really just try to tell people to get their mammograms because the only thing worse than finding a lump is to not find a lump. Well said. Well, as we talked about off the start, there is a study going on, research being done at Lawson, and that's in London, that will hopefully show that we can detect breast cancer faster, we can detect it more accurately, and like you say, don't wait around, get that done and, uh, and get those checks done. And yes, and keep uh, up those walks. All those walks are wonderful because they're they're uh, fueling all these incredible research. The, the one drug that I was on, Herceptin, has actually won a Nobel Peace Prize. So there's just wonderful things that are happening within that whole thing too. And yes, and I understand London is like right up there, so that's fantastic. We've got so much research going on, and uh, can't wait to see what comes out of that research. It is Breast yeah. Cancer Awareness Month. Lindy, congratulations on beating cancer. Congratulations on losing the weight, keeping it off. I hope we see you on a People magazine cover again. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike, for having me. Happy Thanksgiving. Keep safe. Thanks. And you too. That's Lindy Cellucci. See, did I not say she was somebody who you just need to have kind of on speed dial? Yeah, that's that's the light that she brings into the world. So we'll keep following that research in London. Again, if you missed it off the start, this is something that's happening at Lawson Health Research. Um, I've tweeted out the link to a story that Jacqueline LaBelle wrote 
for Global News Radio when this particular story began. And it's a diagnostic imaging tool, and it was used first at St. Joe's here in London, and now they're doing a lot of research on it to see if, in fact, what they think is a reality. And if it is, it's game changer. Normally heading into the Thanksgiving weekend, you're feeling great. It's three days off. You get to hang out with people. Maybe you're hosting, so there's a little bit of stress. Maybe you haven't bought a turkey yet, so you're looking at the utility turkey pile and thinking, I thought some of these had three legs. These ones don't have any. Uh, what are we going to do here? Can I? Do you have any turkey legs for sale anywhere just by themselves? So that's usually the roughest thing. We're in a very different world right now. But at the same time, we want to have some optimism going into the weekend. So here's what we want to do. We want to play who should get the vaccine first, because just hearing that indicates that there is a chance one day we could have a vaccine. Let's hope that that is the case, and let's hope that what we hear out of the science world is coming true. We don't know when it would be. We still don't know about the complete effectiveness of everything, but let's just let's play that for just a second because at least it feels nice and optimistic. And we do have very intelligent people who are using models to try to figure out how the vaccine should be distributed. And Dr. Chris Bach has been hard at work at that. He's a professor of applied mathematics and a university research chair at the University of Waterloo. Dr. Bach, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Why is it important, even before we answer the question, who should get the vaccine first, why is it important to have some targets for a potential vaccine? Uh, you mean in terms of which groups we should prioritize? Um, yeah, or I guess yeah. yeah, maybe that's the best way to say it. Why is it important to prioritize one group or one age demographic over another? Yeah, so, so when the vaccine becomes available, we're not going to get... 30 million doses all at once will they'll be coming off of a supply line uh, and we'll, and we have also limitations in terms of how many people we can vaccinate per week realistically so uh, we might have to we might have to decide who should get the vaccine first and of course we want to make that decision uh, in a way that prevents the most deaths we possibly can so in determining that how do you start building models to try and figure that out? Yeah, so there's a whole range of approaches you can take. So our approach was to try to focus model for Ontario. So we developed our model with Ontario um, demographics and age structure, uh, with Ontario COVID case um, data, uh, and also with data on, on deaths. Uh, and, and then we said, well, in Ontario, let's look at uh, a few different strategies. One strategy is, is maybe the thing you might for, think of first, which is to vaccinate the elderly. Um, but the other strategy is say, well, maybe we should be vaccinating the people who spread the infection. So let's look at some other approaches, like maybe we should vaccinate the kids first, or maybe we should just uh, give out the first vaccines randomly like a lottery. So we compared these different approaches, uh, and um, we created a mathematical model to predict their different effects they would have on the number of deaths from COVID-19. 
Interesting. Okay, so that sets the groundwork in all of this. We're talking with Dr. Chris Bach, Professor of Applied Mathematics, University Research Chair at the University of Waterloo, about some new research, some new modeling that Dr. Bach has co-authored that looks at who should get the vaccine first. So when you put that model to use, Dr. Bach, what did you find? Who should get the vaccine first? Right. So there were some interesting surprises. So we found that if the vaccine becomes available earlier, uh, as in, uh, for example, January 2021, that it makes sense to do your, your, your first instinct, which is to give it to the elderly. We can prevent the most deaths that way since they are at highest risk of COVID-19. But the interesting thing that we found was that if the vaccine becomes available later in the pandemic, such as next summer 2021, then the, the, the best strategy changes. In that case, it actually makes sense to target age groups that cause the most spread. Uh, for example, you could vaccinate uh, children first, or you could even do that lottery system I mentioned. Uh, in both of those cases, we actually prevent more deaths. Now, the reason that happens is that vaccines work two ways. First of all, we, call, we talk about something called direct protection. A vaccine protects those who get the shot. But there's also something called indirect protection. So that means if I get the vaccine, I can't transmit it to the people around me. Now, that indirect protection, uh, how important it is, changes depending upon where we are in the pandemic. If we're early in the pandemic, it's not a strong effect. And that's because if I get vaccinated, um, I may not protect you that well because, you know, sure, I won't infect you, but there's so many cases around that someone else will. Hmm. Uh, and, and so that's why if we get the vaccine in January, when we still have lots of, potentially lots of cases, then you should vaccinate the vulnerable, the elderly. Okay. Now, if we're talking about later in the pandemic, so by that time, a lot of people have immunity. There are going to be fewer cases in the future. In that case, if I get vaccinated, I protect you a lot more if, if you're a contact in my house, for example, um, because there aren't as many other ways they can get infected. And not only that, but if I protect you by getting vaccinated, if you, and if you don't get infected, then the people you know don't get infected, and the people they don't get infected. So, so there's like a chain of protection. So you end up preventing more than just one case. You might prevent two or three or four cases by, by getting vaccinated. Uh, and, and so because of that um, effect, which kicks in later in the pandemic, it actually makes more sense to vaccinate the spreaders. Uh, and that usually means uh, people below 20 especially, um, but also adults of working age because, you know, they're out and about during the day working and then they come home to their families. They also have a lot of contacts. Wow. Okay. Well, these these are incredibly in-depth models that we're talking about. Dr. Chris Bach joining us, Professor of Applied Mathematics and a University Research Chair at the University of Waterloo. Dr. Bach, what now happens to this research? Is this something that you quickly put into a package and send to the province saying, hey, when uh, when things get going here, you'll need this? That, you know, that's the basic idea. So, so um, uh, we're going to send this material to the province, uh, to the Ministry of Health, uh, and also, you know, the model is it could be adapted to any population. So, for example, if you want to do a model for Alberta, well, then you just replug in the Alberta uh, inputs, you know, the Alberta age structure, Alberta demography, Alberta COVID cases. And you can, you know, it can spit out a prediction of, of when you should change your, your vaccination priority group for, 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 for Alberta. 
So in principle, any place in the world can, can use this model to figure out how best to, to use the vaccine in their population. Would you expect them to have similar results, or would there be enough variables that what would work in Ontario at a certain time would not necessarily work in another place? Yeah, that could change. So, for example, if, if a different province has a, uh, uh, has had a different number of, epidem- uh, of pandemic waves, for, uh, for, for instance, or if they have different age structure, uh, then all of those things can change when that switch occurs. Uh, I couldn't tell you what the answer is before running the model, but but that can have an impact, and that's an important thing to think about. Well, I really appreciate the time, Dr. Bach. Please continue to create models that can send us in proper directions, and here's hoping that we wind up on one of those proper directions sooner rather than later. Happy Thanksgiving, and please keep safe. Okay, you too, Mike. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Chris Bach. Professor of Applied Mathematics, University Research Chair at the University of Waterloo. So, it isn't a simple answer. Is anything about COVID-19 simple? Can, can we find one thing? I guess it's simple to spell it, because it has a number in it that we're pretty familiar with, and it only has five letters. That's about it. I mean, is anything simple with this? When we ask who should get the vaccine first, according to the modeling done by Dr. Bach, The idea is, okay, when is this vaccine coming out? Let's say that we do have something that we could make use of in January because case counts could still be high. You want to make sure and use it as protection first. And so you would protect, as Dr. Bach says, anyone who is in a vulnerable sector or anyone who is in a vulnerable age demographic. And then if it comes out when case counts are perhaps a little lower or when we have had a little more immunity developed because more people have had it, then what do you want to do? Well, you want to give it to those who have the opportunity to spread the disease first. And the goal in all of this is obviously can we can we use the scientists to make sure this happens? Because the last thing you want to do is hear somebody who has control over who's getting the virus stepping up and saying all right we're gonna have a lottery uh make sure you get your tickets let's hope that's not the way that it goes let's do this in a more scientific manner because think about this there are going to be two real schools of people when and if there is a working vaccine there are going to be those who say i'm not putting that in my body And I don't know what you do there. You're not going to be able to put it in their body. I really don't think we're going to see mandatory vaccines off the hop. And how many of those people will there be? Well, all we need to do is look at the COVID alert app. We need 60% of the population to make it effective. We're not even close. We had a researcher on last week who indicated, well, we've got to look at who could be getting the COVID alert app based on whether or not they would own a smartphone, whether or not that smartphone would be able to accommodate it. So you're looking at maybe 25% on kind of a prorated scale. So instead of the 2 4 6%, it's more like 25%. So, okay, that's that's at least a little bit better. It's nowhere near 60, not even close. So if we have a few people to... You know, to look at this and say, I'm not taking this yet, 
And if we have stats that are similar to the COVID alert app, we may have quite a few people there. So that will exist. The other school is going to be, I'm getting this and I'm getting it now and I will trample over anybody who gets in my way. And so how do we deal with that school of things? This week, we heard from the federal government and we heard about their ideas to ban single-use plastics by the end of next year. So by the end of 2021. And this is something that has been talked about by the Prime Minister, who has used statements like the use of these kinds of plastics is, quote, a problem we simply can't afford to ignore, that they are harmful in the environment, they're difficult or costly to recycle, and there are readily available alternatives, according to the Prime Minister. So what would this ban focus in on? Well, you would no longer be able to use those plastic grocery bags that right now during a pandemic we're being told we have to use so that's a tricky one uh here's hoping we are well out of this pandemic by the end of 2021 maybe that's the positive in this uh beverage six-pack rings nope can't use those plastic cutlery nope plastic straws no and then food packaging made from plastics that don't necessarily have a spot in the recycling bin. And the last thing would be stir sticks for coffee. So that's the way the government is going. When discussions about single-use plastics began, and they've been going on for a while. I mean, we can look around this area and find some spots. Bayfield, I think, is one where you have spots you can't use single-use plastics, or they're not offered in restaurants. But we have one spot in particular in this country and in this province that has decided they're going to go ahead with this. They were not going to wait around for the government to decide, okay, it's uh, it's time, we're going to ban these single-use plastics now. And that spot is Fort Francis. And joining us right now from Fort Francis is City Councilor Douglas Judson. Councilor Judson, thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Thanks for having me. This began in Fort Francis not a month ago or two months ago. This began a while ago. When did you get started in these discussions to say, hey, these are serious and could actually lead to some legislation on this? You know, in rural and northern Ontario, I think we are always looking for ways that we can show leadership in local government. And so very shortly after we took office in December of 2018, uh, I started a process to talk about you know, what sort of reception there was in our community to making change in this area of policy. And, um, you know, I I expected there'd be some opposition, but to be honest, I was very pleasantly surprised at how um, forward-thinking and open to this idea our small business community was and our citizens were. So um, we went through a process to engage with some of the stakeholders who would, you know, sort of have to bear the brunt of this regulation. I'm sure you could imagine you know, restaurants, uh, retailers, uh, et cetera. And uh, after a few months, we brought it to council. We, we put it through some council committees. Um, and really, there was not much pushback against what we were trying to do. I think everyone saw this was the direction of the future, and they wanted their community to be on the map as being part of that political will to do something about this problem. In certain cases like this, 
you kind of will see people hold out until they absolutely have to. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, the, I have until next Friday to get that done. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you Thursday at 11.59, and I'll, I'll make sure and I have that for you. It doesn't sound like you got that kind of an attitude. What do you think it was that prevented people from saying, well, why don't we just wait until the federal government makes us? Well, I think that this way, uh, you know, the way we did it, we were allowed to craft something that was locally responsive, and people recognized that something was coming because, you know, this was talked about for a long time. We heard the federal liberals talking about it for uh, in, in the previous election campaign. People knew there was a change that was on the way, and this was a way that we could, you know, not just develop a locally responsive bylaw, but we could develop something that we could then use as a tool and we could use the input we received from that process. If there was a higher level of government that wanted to talk about this, we could provide that feedback in sort of a, a ready-to-go, hot-off-the-stove uh, manner. So it was an important process, I think, for, for to, to get that sense of, uh, of public sentiment uh, on, the, on the issues. We're talking right now with Fort Francis City Councilor Douglas Judson. Councilor Judson... You will provide a lot of information for the country by the time we get to the end of 2021. It's one thing to say, okay, we're going to ban plastics and single-use plastics, and that's that's going to be it. But you kind of have to have guidelines as to what happens if people continue to use those plastics. How did those conversations go? Look, we're not here to make it a beat cop's job to go around um, policing people on plastic bags. So our bylaw was adopted in January. It comes into effect January 1st, 2021. Uh, as a municipal bylaw, we, you know, we have monetary fines in place. Those actually don't kick in until a year after. And, and the purpose of that is to make sure that all of our business community members have an opportunity to exhaust whatever inventories they have and that consumers have an opportunity to make uh, make you know behavioral adjustments and we have have this sort of this year of this educative process to get everyone on board with the direction we're going all right now in terms of what those punishments would be obviously we, we don't want to you know have like you say police officers going around and and handing out all kinds of citations but what sorts of things did you wind up having to implement just to have that guideline we've we've left uh some wiggle room in the bylaw for the bylaw officers to um to put them to make discretionary fines um they're they're fairly minor i mean we're we're, we're not talking like huge amounts of money that people are going to be shelling out is in violation of this bylaw it, you know really we want this to be a positive thing. We want the, the focus here to be on educating our business community, on um, getting consumers to change their behavior, and on sort of nudging people into making those more responsible decisions. So the focus of our discussion hasn't been on penalizing people for making the wrong decisions. It's been about how can we nudge people into making the right decisions as consumers. And frankly, you know, we're in northern Ontario. We, um, we're, we're in a forestry-based economy up here. We want to, you know, See products more, more products become more popular that are generated from for, from uh, forest sector uh, resources. So you know we see this as a win-win. We see it as a you know great way that we can show leadership even as a small community in better consumer choice uh, practices. You already have some of the cleanest air going. Take a breath of it for the rest of us, and now you stand to have things just feeling that much 
cleaner. And I, I love the idea of the education because I think we would have a lot of doubters that ah, that that kind of thing, again, is not going to work. But take a look at our masking bylaws. They've been education based. There have been very few fines that have been handed out. And yet you go to a store, you go to a grocery store and almost 100 percent of people are wearing masks. So maybe we need to give ourselves a little more of the benefit of the doubt that education can work without having to slap wrists. Yeah, and I want to give a real credit to our business community, not just locally, but some of the larger businesses that operate in our community. Most of them were already working on initiatives to start addressing this problem. So, you know, we're not forcing anything really on anyone that they weren't already considering. And I think you're right about that. The current predicament we're in around the uh, the pandemic and the masking and all the precautions we're taking, I think is making people... Um, really reflect on the fact that we're all in this together on these global problems and all the little things we all have to do contributes to a solution. Great stuff. Councillor Douglas Judson joining us from Fort Francis. As a final note, when exactly does this go into effect in Fort Francis? Our bylaw takes effect January 1st, 2021. Uh, We'll be engaging in some public education over the next few months of the year uh, to get people positioned to, uh, to make those changes. Again, we're not penalizing anyone. We have no fines that come into effect until another year after that. Uh, but our hope is that as a community, we can we can move forward and demonstrate leadership uh, to the rest of the province on how this is done, and that solutions are not uh, are not that far away. Well. Thank you for taking the initiative. Again, you're going to have the country looking at you to see how did this go, how did it work out, and is this something that is going to work from coast to coast. Thanks so much, Councillor Judson. Please keep safe and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Councillor Douglas Judson in Fort Francis, Ontario, where a single-use plastics ban is coming into effect, very similar to what we will see according to the federal government, at the end of 2021. And so we've got an opportunity to do some hindsight. We've got that in so many ways around here. We, we talked earlier about London being a real key as a test market. So we get a lot of things first, but in some cases, we've got an ability to look and see what happens elsewhere to try and figure out what we're going to do. Single-use plastics, yeah, as a country, we can look to Fort Francis. Major junior hockey, we can look at the QMJHL and see how the OHL might respond. And if we're talking about the county of Middlesex, London, and the county of Elgin, If we are to look at what's happening in Toronto and Peel and Ottawa and York regions, if we aren't careful, we could wind up going where they are going. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.